We're going to be in John chapter 11 today, so if you have a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 11. But I'm going to switch things up for us, and before we read, I'm actually going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive into the sermon, and we'll read shortly after I dive in. So, please pray with me here now. Oh, great God and Savior, our Father who is in heaven, we thank you for this week that is before us. We thank you just for this tradition of each and every season and each and every year we celebrate Jesus, your coming, but not just your coming, but your death in our place and your powerful resurrection, which sealed everything that you taught, everything that you came to accomplish. And so, Lord, I pray just that you would be stirring in our hearts, even here this morning, just a longing to know you more and to want to make you known and that you would give us great meaning, significance, and purpose in your purpose and why you came. So, Lord, I'm grateful for these dear saints who are gathered here this morning. Lord, as our country mourns the, the just horrific events that happened in Boulder just six days ago, Lord, we pray for those families who have been affected by this shooting. Lord, we pray for those who are hurting, who are grieving right now. God, we know that there are good people, people that believe in you, sons and daughters of the King that live in Boulder. And Lord, I pray just that you would use these events, that you would use this shooting to draw people to yourself, to bring glory to your name, to help people find hope in the midst of such a tragedy, Lord. So we pray that you would comfort those families here and now, that you would send your saints, that you would send your servants, and Lord, that you would comfort them. Lord, we also pray for our church, and Lord, as we desire to want to live for you, God, I pray just that we would live for you this week and that we would be bold in who we invite. And Lord, we pray just as these people might be in our minds right now, God, I pray just that you would be stirring in those people's hearts, even here and now, giving them a longing for deep meaning and significance and eternal things that are only found in you. So God, help us to trust you, help us to believe in you, help us to follow you and be bold and invite people trusting that you want to bring people into your sheepfold who have yet to come. So Lord, thank you for this morning. God, we pray as we open up your word that you would give us great understanding. God, that you would use me to stand in the gap, to speak to your people. And Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning, we'll start out with a question. It's a question that many of you might know right away when I ask it. Some of you might still be trying to answer that question throughout your life. And that question is, what is your purpose? What is your purpose? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a question that there's been many books written on to provide answers. There's, there's many podcasts out there here today, and there's lots of opinions in how 
to answer that question and how someone can go and find their purpose. And it's a worthwhile question. We should know our purpose. We should know why we are living and what we are here for. And we all long to know what is our purpose. And I would argue you can't get through life without knowing your purpose. You can't even get through today without knowing what your purpose is. I think of it like a road trip. No one goes on a road trip and prepares and gets in a car and doesn't know the destination. No, you you know where you're going. And when we know our purpose, there's much clarity. We understand what we are called to do. And there are many of us here in this room this morning because we believe that Jesus Christ is the purpose for our life. And Jesus Christ has given us purpose. Well, it begs the question then, do you know what Jesus' purpose was in life? Do you know why Jesus came? There are many modern scholars out there that would like to debate the Bible and would like to debate why Jesus actually came. And they would say something along the lines of, well, yes, he had many good things to say. Jesus was a good moral teacher. Others might say that he showed great benevolence and kindness to the least of these. And then others might say, well, he did live and then he died and his his death became somewhat of a revolution and he was a revolutionary, but he stayed dead. And there's not much beyond that. Well, instead of listening to modern-day scholars or the scholars that want to debate Jesus' purpose, this morning I want us to go to a first-century scholar. And not just a first-century scholar, but an eyewitness to Jesus' life, to Jesus' death. And not just an eyewitness, but a close companion. And that's the Apostle John. So if you have your Bibles... Let's open them up. Let's look at John 11. We're going to start in 55. We're going to be majority in chapter 12. But if you will, please stand with me and I will read our text here this morning. John 11:55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another, as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel spoke to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. 
This is God's word for God's people here this morning. You may be seated. Okay, so this morning, I forgot to tell you this before I read, we're going to be talking about the reason why Jesus came. Maybe you picked up on that, the reason why Jesus came. We're going to look at that in three parts this morning. We're going to see that Jesus came to judge those that reject him. We're going to see that Jesus came to offer life to those that accept him. And we're going to see that Jesus came to glorify the Father. So the first one, Jesus came to judge those that reject him. And I'm getting this point primarily from verse 31 which says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That ruler is Satan. And we're going to see in this point how Satan has blinded many people. So, I realize you guys are coming in here this morning. We usually preach through books of the Bible. And we're taking a break in Exodus, so let me just paint a picture of the context of what's going on here in the Gospel of John. Jesus has just done something amazing, namely raise Lazarus from the dead. And there are many people who are catching wind of this, and they're wanting to see Jesus. They're wanting to be with Jesus and hear and maybe catch a glimpse of another jaw-dropping, astonishing sign like he just did. And so, this happened right before the Passover, which I'll remind you, the Passover was this annual celebration of what God did for his people when he brought them out of slavery, out of Egypt, and to himself. You've seen that. So annually, this was a celebration, and there are many people who have this pilgrimage who are coming to Jerusalem Some scholars think that maybe as many as two million people are here. Two million people. So when 1155 says, and many went up to, many went up from the country to Jerusalem, I I think that's a gross understatement. I mean, two million people is, is a lot. And they're trying to catch Jesus. This 30 something carpenter from the northern region of Galilee who has turned into a rabbi, who has turned into a prophet, who has turned into this great healer. Or so they think he's turned into that. But I would argue he's always been that. And so, after he did this amazing sign of raising a man from the dead, Lazarus, their interest is piqued. And finally, they're, they're beginning to realize Could this be the long-awaited Messiah? Could this be the one whom we've set our hopes on for many centuries? Could this be the one who's going to overthrow the Roman rule? And there's a particular tension that's kind of building here in the Gospel of John because we see these crowds are not only seeking Jesus, but there's these Religious leaders who are in opposition to Jesus, who are rejecting Jesus and what he says and who he says he is. And these religious leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees, 
Jesus has challenged their authority. Jesus has rebuked them in public. And a lot of the people that were following them are now following Jesus, and they don't like it. And it's not just them that don't like it, don't like him, Jesus. There's also the Romans. Because if there are many people who are saying, this Jesus is our long-awaited king, well, to the Romans, there's no king but Caesar. And so the Romans didn't like Jesus. The chief priests didn't like Jesus. And they wanted him eliminated. They wanted him dead. But there's this ongoing tension. Even though they want him dead, what are they going to do with a man who can raise the dead at will? And so this tension is building in the Gospel of John. And then we have Jesus coming into Jerusalem. In the first Palm Sunday, John 12, 12. I hope you guys have your Bibles open. I'm going to be jumping all over the place here this morning. But in John 12, 12, we see Jesus comes. And there's so much symbolism here in what's going on. And they celebrated His coming. They have these palm branches that they're waving. Not in this account, but the other gospel accounts. They're laying their cloaks, their, their jackets, their clothes on the ground as this proverbial red carpet. And they're shouting, Hosanna! Hosanna! Which means save us. Save us. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. That is a quote from Psalm 118, which Jack read from earlier this morning. Uh, we, we often know it here at our church as today is a day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so the crowd here, they are pumped up. They are joyful. They are exuberant. They are waving these branches. And here comes their king. And amidst all this symbolism that's going on, here comes Jesus. And he's riding on a donkey. In fact, it's a foal. It's a baby donkey. One that has never been written before. And yes, this is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, which is quoted here. And yes, this harkens back to King Solomon in 1 Kings when he came into Jerusalem and he was riding on a donkey and people were celebrating that. And yes, there is this great symbolism of a war victory that's going on here, but more than that, more than the symbolism, there's a great irony here. Because if Jesus was to come as this great military or political king to, to overthrow the Romans, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. He'd be riding a horse. He'd be riding a war steed, which when he comes back for the second advent, he will be riding. But the great irony here is amidst his humility of riding on a donkey, Luke's account says that Jesus is, is weeping. His soul is troubled. He's, he's sad. Because he knows that many of these people who are shouting praises have so much joy that in five days, many of these people are going to reject him. Many of these people are going to be the ones that shout, not Hosanna, but crucify Him. And so they don't get it. They've been blinded by the ruler of this world. And not just the crowds. 
We're given a little bit of insight here in verse 16 that the disciples, they didn't even understand these things at first. You better believe they were pumped up because they've been walking with Jesus. They've not only seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, but they've seen him do many other amazing and jaw-dropping, astonishing things, testifying that he is the Messiah. And they didn't understand it, and it wasn't until he died and was raised that they understood these things. But the religious leaders, verse 19, the Pharisees, they say to one another, see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world is going after it. I think what they're saying here (laughs) is a gross overstatement or hyperbole. I think they're just exasperated with Jesus that they don't know what to do with him now. They see these crowds that are going after him. And they're rejecting him all the more. And so, they come up with this plan. How are we going to eliminate Jesus and show their ultimate rejection against him? Well, they go to his inner circle. They go to one of his closest companions. And we will see that in the chapters to come, that Judas betrays Jesus. And I want to look at Judas for a moment back in verses 1 through 8 in this great scene and Mary and Martha's house where there's this dinner party going on and Mary comes along and takes this expensive ointment that, that filled the room with the fragrance. It's almost as if the person who's writing this was there and is thinking of that fragrance as he's writing this. And she anoints Jesus' feet. And then Judas. Judas comes along. Why wasn't this money, why wasn't this ointment sold for the poor and the money given? Why wasn't this ointment sold and the money given to the poor? You see, this ointment was worth 300 denarii, which you might have a footnote about that, which was about a year's worth of wages. Think of your salary in some ointment. (laughs) Your annual salary. Well, We see that Judas' motivation here wasn't so much for the poor, but it was for himself. Judas was motivated by greed. Judas was motivated by his own interests to the point where he would reject Jesus and sell him for 30 pieces of silver. And so whether it's the crowds, whether it's the religious leaders, whether it's Even his disciples, those closest to him, they they didn't understand what was going on. Many of them were blinded by the ruler of this world. And just like he is about to face judgment, they will face judgment as well if they continue to reject Jesus. See, when he says in verse 31, now the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Jesus is about to deal his final blow to that devilish snake going all the way back to the garden who deceived, who lied. But there was a prophecy, there was a promise that the seed of the woman, Jesus, would come and crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And he deals that final blow with the cross. And he will judge, not just the ruler of the world, but all those who oppose and reject 
Jesus. And this is a, this is a sobering thought. The idea that we, we can be judged by God for our sin, for our rejection of Him, for our rebellion. And if we desert God, He's going to desert us. We see that in the second half of 36. When Jesus had said these things, He departed and He hid Himself from them. You see, Jesus came not for all sweetness and light and butterflies. No, He came to judge those who would reject Him. And we have to understand the bad news before we understand the good news. Which leads me to my second point here this morning. That Jesus came to offer life. Jesus came to offer life. Look with me at verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Were some Greeks. And they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They say that to Philip. Philip doesn't know what to do, so he goes and finds Andrew. And Andrew's got a great legacy in the Bible. He, he goes and he brings people to Jesus. <laughs> Love to have that legacy. He did that with his brother Peter. Well, so Andrew takes Philip and, and they go and find Jesus and, and tell him, hey, there's some Greeks here for you. What, what do you want us to do with them? <laughs> and Jesus, I love his response. He says, now the hour has come. Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's like, now? Why now? Well, we've seen throughout Jesus' life that he says time and time again, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He says that at the wedding of Cana, John chapter 2, when his mother asks him to do something about them running out of wine and he does this miracle, this sign of turning water into wine. But before he does that, he tells his mom, my hour has not yet come. He says that again in chapter 7, and he says that again in chapter 8. And So why now? Well, I think it's because of verse 32. Look with me at verse 32. He says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to Myself, all people to himself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus' death was for the whole world. And as these Greeks are now seeking after him, Jesus was to die not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. And that's good news. And I'll explain how with Jesus' illustration that he uses in verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it'll bear much fruit. So, I really like this illustration. I came across it a number of years ago reading through the Gospel of John and didn't really get it at first, but... As I've come to understand it, and even as I got to study it here this week, this is, this is amazing. You see, a grain of wheat, yes, wheat is grown to be eaten, but wheat is not grown so that it is stored somewhere. It's, it's worthless if it 
is put on a shelf somewhere or put into a container and never used. I would say the, the primary means or the primary purpose of wheat is to reproduce itself. It's to fall to the earth, die, and then bear much fruit, as Jesus is saying here. I have a picture for us of wheat, so you can throw that up there. Here's a, here's a stalk of wheat, a little grainy, but if you see on top of the stalk is a head of wheat, and in there are many grains or many kernels. So my question for you is, if you were to guess, how many kernels of wheat are in one stalk there? How many grains or kernels are in one stalk? You can guess about 50, give or take. Well, imagine you just take one of those kernels and it falls to the earth and dies. How many stalks of wheat are in just one kernel? Countless. Many. You cannot number them. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. Is that his life would be that one grain of wheat that falls to the earth, dies, would rise from the dead, and all who believe in him are that fruit that is born. And we will be just like him. And the beginning of the resurrection is coming here this week. And he will be the first one, and all those who put their faith in him will follow. And that's good news for you and for me, because if I were to guess, we're not Jewish. Maybe a handful of us, at most. But we Greeks or Gentiles or the world that Jesus died for, we are the ones that get the benefit. And so, it begs the question for you here this morning, have you rejected God? Have you rejected Him in understanding of who He is or why He came? Do you understand the purpose for which Jesus came? Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus came to offer life. And He did that first and foremost by offering His life. So that we might have life. So that we can have life in Him. Jesus says this in verses 35, the, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Darkness there is this idea of rejecting Jesus. He says, the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. He does not have a purpose. But Jesus says, walk in the light, and not just walk, but believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus came to give us life. And we are called to believe in Him. And we are offered this life in Him for eternity. And that invitation, that's a big invitation. And many of us in here, we have said yes to that invitation. Yes, Jesus, I will follow you. And many of us, or some of us in here, you've yet to say yes. And I hope that today you make that decision to follow Jesus and not reject Him. 
But Jesus illustrates what that invitation looks like for us in verses 25 and 26. Look at those with me. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you want honor, if you want life, you lose your life. You give your life to Jesus. And this is, this is the great paradox of the Christian life. That if you want to keep your life, if you love your life and what you're doing, you will eventually lose it. But if you see the life that is offered to you from Jesus, if you give your life to Jesus, if you are willing to hate your life, you will find life to the full in Him. And what Jesus is talking about here is is not just coming to faith in Him for the first time in your life. I would argue that what Jesus is getting at here is an ongoing lifestyle of repentance and faith that we continue to give our lives to Jesus in the everyday mundane moments of life. But that's, that's difficult. That's hard for a lot of us. I know it's hard for me. It was hard for me even here this week as I was preparing for this sermon. But if you want to have true purpose, if you want to have true meaning, true significance in your life, you look to the One who created you. You follow the One who knows you deeply, intimately, who knows the the good things about you, but also the really ugly things about you. And amidst all those things, He accepts you. He forgives you. And He loves you. And He offers life for you. And it begs the question, will you trust Him? Will you give your life to Him? For the Christian, will you continue to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Him? It's hard. We waver in this all the time. We waver in this trust. Just this past week, I took my two oldest sons skiing. And my six-year-old Jude... I said, hey, bud, do you want to go skiing with your brother and I? Uh, Yeah, sure, Dad. Jude is one who wavers more than anyone that I know in the decisions that he makes. So just a few minutes later, ah, Dad, I'm not sure if I want to go skiing. I, I think I'll stay here with Mom. Jude, trust Daddy. I think you'll have a fun time. Okay, I'll go, but... But Daddy, I'm only doing the green runs. Okay, Jude. So we go up to Snowy Range, and it's a great day, eight inches of powder. It was awesome. And we get out there, and Jude says, Daddy, I only want to ride the small lift, okay? I'm just doing the small lift. Jude, trust Daddy. I'm going to take you on some fun things here today. Will you trust me? Okay, Dad. So we do that small lift a few times, and then I'm like, all right, we're going we're gonna to do something else, Jude. Okay, Dad, but no blues. We're not doing blues today. Jude, trust Daddy. So we go, and we do some greens, and then I tell Solomon, Solomon, we're going to do a blue, but don't tell Jude. <laughs> so we go, and we do this really easy blue. 
And he loves it. The smiles across his face. And so then dad says, all right, let's try something else. And we do a more difficult blue. And it's pretty steep. And Solomon takes off. And I'm riding behind Jude. And he's just bombing down the hill. He can't stop. He's trying pizza, pizza, pizza. And I'm like, uh-oh, this isn't going to be good. All of a sudden, crash. Just yard sale, double eject of the skis. I mean, it's bad. And I get down there, and he's just wailing. He's crying, Daddy, I told you I didn't want to come today. Why did you take me skiing? I hate this. I never want to do this again. So I, you know, feel bad for him and pick him up, comfort him, whisper sweet everything's into his ear. Daddy, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. And I point down the hill to Jude and said, buddy, we, we have to get our skis back on. Like, you're not going to walk from here. Trust Daddy. You can make it from here. Okay. So we put his skis back on and we ski to the bottom to the lift. And I look at Jude and say, hey, bud, you want to go back up again? Yeah, sure, Dad. Let's do it. So we ski for the rest of the day and we don't do that run again. And then on the way home, Jude's just pumped. He's just so excited for this great day of skiing that we had. He looks at me and says, thanks for taking me skiing, Dad. I had a fun time. I said, you're welcome, bud. You're welcome, bud. And I think similarly in the Christian life, ladies and gentlemen, there are things that God calls us to that might look scary or very difficult. And it just begs the question, are we willing to trust him? So what is that area in your life that Jesus is calling you to? What is that area of your life that you've yet to submit to him? Maybe it's a, a pretty big area of your life and you know it right away. But for many of us, I think in order to get to that big area, it happens in the very small decisions that we make every single day. Are we willing to follow Jesus in the small and mundane things? Just this week, I was convicted of that I need to follow Jesus in how I use my tongue. I need to follow Jesus in how I treat people. Some of the people that are really close to me. I need to deny myself and follow Him, lose my life, so that I will find life. When I follow Him, when I serve Him, like Jude, I usually have a great time. I might crash and burn sometimes. <laughs> but let us trust Jesus as we follow Him and serve Him in the big things as well as the little sacrifices. And trust that we will find life and purpose in doing that day in and day out. So Jesus came to judge those that would reject Him. Jesus came to offer life to those that would accept him. And finally, Jesus came to save. Sorry, Jesus came to bring glory to the Father. So in verse 27, Jesus has this, what I think is a startling statement. Amidst him coming to Jerusalem, weeping on a donkey, he says, my soul is troubled. My soul is troubled. That word troubled is, is an interesting one, and I chased it down here this week. It has the, 
meaning of being unsettled. Something's kind of stirred up. But there's, there's a deeper meaning here that there's this kind of revulsion or, or horror. So it's as if Jesus is saying, my soul is horrified by what I'm facing. And he has this crisis moment. He has this moment of crisis. And I love what he does here. And I think it's a great example for us. Look what he does here. He speaks truth to himself and then he prays to his father. He speaks truth and says that it is for this purpose that I have come. He is anchored in that truth and it helps him to press on. There's echoes of this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here where Jesus prays, oh Lord, won't you take this cup from me? This cup, his future of God's wrath that's going to be poured out on him on the cross. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will. So Jesus prays there in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays here in our passage this morning. Father, glorify your name. Let what I am about to do glorify your name, not mine. Let this be to bring your name, renown, fame, weight, glory. And the amazing happens right after that. The Father answers Jesus' prayer. The Father speaks audibly. This is the third time that we've seen it in the Gospel accounts. The first, when Jesus is baptized, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. The second, the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my Son. Listen to Him. And now, here. The Father says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And just as the Father spoke on that Palm Sunday, He speaks on this Palm Sunday as well. And this is a confirmation that the supreme purpose of Jesus is to glorify the Father by the satisfaction of His justice. We sang about this. Penal substitutionary atonement is what many theologians call it. This idea of Jesus was our substitute, that the debt that we incurred, the penalty that we incurred for our sin was poured out on Him as He was the atonement, as He was the sacrifice on the cross. The Father spoke so that the world would know that He would be glorified in what the Son was going to do. And the crowd's response... <laughs> They just keep rejecting Jesus. The crowd says, oh, it was thunder. Or other people said, oh, an angel spoke. And the truth of God's Word was suppressed that day. And they didn't want to hear it. And they denied it. They suppressed it. And they tried to explain it in natural terms. Oh, it, that was thunder. Or they tried to explain it in terms that fits into their religious or philosophical system. Oh, the angels spoke. And they didn't want to hear it. And they continued to debate Jesus. Well, who is this Son of Man? 
They say later on in the passage, we heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And it begs the question, do you believe in God's Word? Do you believe that Jesus came to glorify the Father? Or are you like the crowd here who just wants to debate? Who is deaf and cannot hear? Or thinks that God's Word is some sort of indistinguishable noise. I pray that in God's mercy, He gives you and He gives me ears to hear. Hear this week during Holy Week. We have our Good Friday darkening service. And this is a powerful, powerful time. I hope that God will speak to you as an individual and us corporately through that service. And then next Sunday, man, we're going to have a party. We're going to blow the roof off of this place. I hope you're dressed to the nines. And I hope we come in here and we hear from God's word and we celebrate this resurrection life. And it fuels us for the rest of our Christian life because Jesus offered his life. He was the substitute in our place so that we would never fear the wrath of God. And that we would have life. So what's your plan to hear God's word here this week? I've pulled together a number of resources for our church. I've put them on our website. For those of you that are on Realm, I will post them to Realm here today. I've got some study guides. I've got a little bit of a devotional reading. Uh, many of you have seen the videos that we've posted in years past. There's a video for each day on Holy Week. Let's take some time and hear from God's Word here this week. And let us continue to remember Jesus' sacrifice and let that fuel us to live for Him. I'm going to close this morning looking back at that dinner party scene in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12. And I want to look at Mary. I want to highlight Mary a little bit here. And this idea that Mary has this radical devotion for Jesus. Mary is the sister of Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. Mary is also the sister of Martha, who is serving and putting on this dinner party. But Mary, she's there soaking in this moment of not just having her brother who was dead and alive at the table, but having Jesus at the table. Because she knew who Jesus was. And she shows this extravagant love and extravagant devotion by what she does, by what she gives to her Lord, Jesus. So this ointment, as I said earlier, is very expensive. It's very expensive. And she takes it and she anoints Jesus' feet with it. Now in that culture, if you messed with someone's feet... That was the work of a servant. So Jesus here is being served by Mary. But not only the feet, she takes her hair, she puts it down, she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair, which for a woman in that culture, they wouldn't be caught in public with their hair down. But Mary doesn't care about cultural norms. Mary doesn't care about what people will think of her. No, Mary is locked in. She is devoted to Jesus. And she makes a radical sacrifice of 
subjecting herself to serve Him, to public ridicule, but also in what she gives. She gives this expensive ointment. So ladies and gentlemen, Mary found her devotion. That's to serve and follow Jesus. And let us find our purpose as we seek to serve and follow Jesus as we reflect here this week on the one who gave his life and not only gave his life, but died and was raised. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word, your word that has so much meaning, so much beauty. Lord, I pray just that you would continue to work in us here this week as we seek out your word. God, I ask just that you would help us to marvel at the beauty of why you came, Jesus. And it wasn't just for judgment for those that reject you, but it was for those who will find life and life to the full in you. So help us, Lord, help us to live for you here today. Help us to find our purpose, our meaning, our significance in you and you alone. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray it in your name. Amen.